Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Ferdinando Giuliano, our economics correspondent. We have also Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, retail banking correspondent. As a special guest, we also have Sir Philip Hampton, the outgoing chairman of Royal Bank of Scotland. This week, we'll be looking at Greece as tensions rise once more. Also a look at Royal Bank of Scotland as they prepare for the reprivatisation process to begin. And finally, Goldman Sachs starts direct lending. First, though, to Greece. And Ferdinando, you've been looking in some detail at the banking system in Greece and how it's been drawn into, rather unpleasantly, this whole level of tension that's surrounding the whole bailout and the restructuring of the debt and so on. The banks really are caught in the middle, largely through no fault of their own, aren't they? Absolutely. I think the Greek banks are very vulnerable at the moment, but that's largely the result of the problems of the Greek state. And I would say that there are um, three areas of particular concern for the Greek banks. One is the immediate concern and its liquidity. And it's because of this bank run. I mean, we can't avoid defining it as such at the moment, which is going on in Greece with depositors going to withdraw their cash as they fear possible redenomination from euros into, say, new drachmas. And those withdrawals are running at a pretty hefty rate. They're kind of one to one and a half billion a day, which is about 1% of deposits in the system. Absolutely. And bankers are worried that this trend could accelerate. So the problem with the bank run is that it can start getting some sort of exponential trend all of a sudden, whereby one day you have alpha billion, then the following day you have one billion, then it becomes two billion, then four. And I think that's the fear. And at the other hand, there is the European Central Bank, which is drip feeding liquidity via its emergency liquidity assistance system, but that can only be given to solvent banks. And that's the second worry which is out there, and it's, are these banks solvent? Now, at the moment, the ECB says they are, but there is this big question over their capital holdings, both in terms of sovereign debt and some deferred tax assets. These are credits which the banks are owed by the Greek state. The big question here is, if there is a default, how do we count these tax credits? How do we count the sovereign bonds? And once you start looking at that, then the capital structure of the banks is questioned because you've got capital which may be high in quantity, but the quality is just not there. Mm -hmm. Martin, you wanted to come in. One small reason of optimism is that the emergency liquidity assistance funding, which is the lifeline that the ECB is providing to the Greek banks, has been increased by just under 1 billion euros, which is a smaller increase than the last time they increased it, which suggests that there's some optimism that the flight of deposits from the system is slowing or at least not accelerating greatly, and also that a deal could be in the offing and they may not need this liquidity assistance. I think that this point is absolutely crucial. The market sense that the deal is coming. I mean, yeah. we looked at banking shares yesterday. It was a party in the Athens Stock Exchange. Yeah. And I think that's because the market is sensing a deal there. Now, whether that's 
true or not, we don't know because this Greek saga has been going on forever and we've always been told that deal was coming and and obviously if there was no deal, the banks would come immediately under pressure. But as things stand at the moment, maybe there is some ground for optimism. One final technical question for you, Ferdi. The ECB is playing a crucial role in this from many perspectives. As you said, they are the liquidity provider right now. They also have a loan outstanding, which is due for repayment on the 20th of July. And they are the bank supervisor, the ones who ultimately decide on the quality of capital you were talking about. There's a huge conflict of interest there, really. At what point do they pull the trigger? Because, you know, if we're talking about putting Greek banks out of their misery, we're essentially saying we're evicting Greece from the eurozone. Is that a decision that the ECB is ever going to make? Or is it such a political question that actually the ECB is powerless? They just have to kind of compromise on all fronts and these conflicts of interest persist? Well, it's a decision which for sure the ECB does not want to make. So it's trying to do everything possible to make it clear to everyone that it's not its fault if Greece has to leave the euro. Now, materially, I agree with you it would be essentially the ECB pulling the plug because what we could end up with in a situation with no deal is the ECB saying, sorry, guys, we can't give you any more emergency liquidity because there is no deal here. You're going to default and you're not solvent. So the rules prohibit us from giving you any more liquidity. And that obviously would trigger a mechanism of its own, more bank run, banks insolvency. The Greek state may need to start printing its own currency in order to recapitalize these banks and to give them some liquidity. But until that happens, until there is a decision by the political elites in Europe that there is no deal, the ECB will be willing to continue drip feeding this liquidity in a very, in a way, (laughs) strange way, because it's not the usual role of the lending of last resort to the banks. It's just, it's very political, but it will continue doing so. One final word, Martin. Yeah, just on the logistical difficulties of introducing capital controls in Greece. I mean, everyone talks about how it happened in Cyprus and it worked very well in Cyprus. But Greece is a completely different kind of scale of problem because it's a much more cash-based economy. And increasingly, since all this cash has been withdrawn from the banking system, it's very porous in terms of a country with land borders, lots of ports, lots of airports. How do you stop the currency going out? What do they do? Will they start stamping the currency with, you know, new drachmas uh, that they issue out of banks and and all this cash that's out there has already escaped so it's very unfair because anybody with money in the banking system will have it turned into new drachma anyone who's taken it out has got euros that they can take abroad and spend with a completely different value so you know huge logistical nightmare of trying to impose this on a country where you know the tax collection system for instance is incredibly inefficient so the state levers of control are very weak in Greece so achieving this kind of capital controls may not be as easy as everyone is assuming Well, we'll report back on this, I suspect, next week, by which time I'm sure there'll be a deal to solve everybody's problems. Let's move on to the second topic. Royal Bank of Scotland has been in the news quite a lot, not least because we have recently interviewed Sir Philip Hampton, the outgoing chairman. He talked about a lot of things, but among them, he said some very interesting things about the valuation of RBS as it heads towards reprivatisation. I think what has changed about banks generally and about this bank more than most is the whole you know, conduct agenda and the size of the fines and that's obviously directly hit shareholder value because we've now paid or provided for £10 billion or thereabouts of fines and you know, customer address issues like PPI and so on. So it's been a huge change to capital expectations and yeah. indeed value expectations. The big bit that's outstanding there, which I think... I'm not sure that these things always have a strategic implication because there have been so many over such an extended period of time. 
but we are expecting to settle on the mortgage act underwriting issues in the coming months and we've got a two and a half billion dollar provision for those uh, and we'll have to see uh, you know what the final settlement is two and a half billion dollars yeah I mean, some some analysts are saying it could be substantially bigger than that. Yes. But we will have to see. Uh, we have to settle with the DOJ and with FHFA, FHFA. Yeah. on that. And you, you could say tactically it mm. might be a good idea for that to be out of the way, given the uncertainty and does that weigh on the share price. But again, these are judgments for UKFI and the, and the, and the government as to yeah. what they do about that uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, a, an awful lot of banks, as you know, are raising an awful lot of equity, despite the fact that these things are hanging over them. So the market is making its judgment on what is the right adjustment to make to share prices. So, Martin, you were with me in that interview. Philip Hampton has ever quite outspoken on a few things. He feels very strongly about this point of valuation and how people shouldn't get hung up on trying to recover the £45 that was injected into RBS back at the height of the financial crisis. He talks about sunk costs and particularly the £10 billion that have gone on conduct costs and the £15 billion that they subsequently put into Ireland and says it was when he took over as chairman at the start of 2009, it was very difficult to imagine those two things were going to come along. So they didn't model those in terms of the capital. But basically, what Sir Philip was saying is that the bank, when it was bailed out by the government, the equity had no value at all. There shouldn't have been any residual value left for the existing shareholders at the time. They were left with 20% of the bank and the the government took 80%, but they should have been completely wiped out because the bank was worthless uh, until the government put in that $45 But I think this is part of the bank's argument to the government, which was backed up by the study done by Rothschild that was cited by the Chancellor George Osborne in his speech in which he announced plans to get on with privatising RBS. The bank wants to be freed from this yoke of government ownership. They want to be backed normality, back to being a normal bank that doesn't have a controlling government shareholding breathing down its neck all the time, particularly on bonuses and on strategy. And, you know, it just complicates life and they would much rather be freed from that. Now, obviously, in order to achieve that, they need to win support from the commercial investment community. And of course, they do have shareholders in that world. 20% of their shares effectively are owned by some of those old investors who were in there back in 2008, and possibly some new and they're all gathering at the bank's annual meeting in Scotland. Emma, what's on the agenda there? One of the things being put to shareholders is the proposed public share sale as the government looks to start offloading its 80% stake. But we're not quite sure yet how exactly the government plans to offload its stake in the lender. And if it's anything like Lloyd's, it could involve a couple of institutional share sales, a Telsid-style public offering, as well as a drip-feeding programme where shares are released on a daily basis into the market. So we're not quite sure yet how this will pan out. But I believe that the first move will probably be an institutional share sale, as there's only 20% currently uh, available to private investors at the moment. And who knows, that may happen towards the end of this year once some of those litigation issues hanging over the bank are out of the way, notably this case in the US over subprime mortgage mis-selling. And what else is on the agenda at the AGM? 
Well, there's another issue relating to the public share sale insofar as shareholders will have to vote on the bank potentially bearing costs of all the documents related to the share sale. So this is a similar situation with Lloyd's, whereby shareholders had to vote whether the bank and ultimately they should bear the cost of this. Additionally, shareholders will vote on the pay packet received by senior management. So in the case of uh, Chief Executive Ross McEwen, it's over... 2 million I think for last year although he did waive his 1 million bonus so yes shareholders will be voting on pay as well As ever a pretty sensitive issue not least when it's a government owned bank. Thanks for that Emma. Let's move on to our final topic. Goldman Sachs last week initiated a process of becoming a direct lender online. Goldman often comes up with innovative ideas. How does this fit into the kind of panoply of new initiatives that we've seen on Wall Street, Laura? Well, over the years, we have seen a lot of the larger investment banks and other larger traditional banks really trying to get a foothold into the various kinds of new lending markets or the non-traditional lending markets. And online is certainly one of them. So Goldman Sachs are now going to try to directly lend probably to consumers and to SMEs through this now. It has been quite tough for them traditionally because the people who began in this area, they tend to be younger, they are they are more nimble, they're more able to adapt. So it isn't clear if someone like Goldman is going to be able to really take its brand into that space and be able to really compete. And what is that competitive landscape like? Because obviously it's pretty big on both sides of the Atlantic, this kind of peer-to-peer lending initiatives. Who are they going to have to beat here, Emma, do you think? Well, this is a problem. They've got some competition in the US market, which is arguably more established in terms of gaining scale and institutional money on board. And obviously they had the IPO of Lending Club last year. So in that sense, they've got some pretty nimble but also established players with a lot of public backing to compete with. And arguably this isn't Goldman Sachs's core strength here. We've also got to see what sort of rates they're offering. So in order to really attract customers and SMEs, are they going to be undercutting the rates on offer from existing peer-to-peer platforms? On top of that, what kind of service are they offering? A lot of these peer-to-peer platforms say that they can originate loans a lot quicker and offer sort of decent customer service. Can Goldman step up to the mark on this level as well? And just to say, I mean, it is different from the peer-to-peer model in that they're taking the loans on their balance sheet. So it's still a, a risk for Goldman Sachs, whereas peer-to-peer a site that merely facilitate the lender to the borrower. So it's quite a different model in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, that this is a rare example of Goldman actually using the banking licence that they almost involuntarily came into back in 2008 on the back of the bank bailouts. It's only by redesignating themselves as a bank that they were able to be bailed out. Absolutely. But I think that Goldman has been ahead of the curve in recognising this as such a massive market. I mean, there was a report out from their own research analysts earlier this year saying they expected $1.7 trillion of consumer and SME lending to be best served online. $1.7 trillion is an absolutely massive market. So if Goldman think they can get even a tiny piece of that, there is big money there. There is money to be made there. And it's also worth saying that this isn't the only way that the large investment banks and the large banks can get into this space. We've also seen some of these newer lenders trying to securitise some of their loans. So earlier this year, we had the rating agency Moody's giving the first rating for a securitisation by Lending Club, and that was seen as being a landmark. So they're hoping to play in that space as well. There was also talk that Goldman Sachs and Societe Generale were going to use this new Aztec money platform, which would facilitate online transactions. 
earlier this year. So far, they haven't done that. But I think what we are seeing is an increasing number of the larger banks are seeing that this is going to be a very big market and they're looking for a variety of ways into it. Emma mentioned earlier the IPO of Lending Club. Goldman was actually the underwriter of that IPO. So they have a number of ways to try to break into what is an enormous market. Absolutely. It's a fast moving space and we will follow it and its development. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank our guests here. That's Martin, Ferdinando, Emma, Laura, and also, of course, Sir Philip Hampton from RBS. Also, thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.